Ladies and gentlemen, what happens when a podcast editor and recapper is too overwhelmed by the amount of Bond content she has to put out that she needs a break? Well, she recruits a bunch of people who really don't seem to like that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie and brings them online to talk about it. It was a radio play, it was a TV series, it was a series of beloved novels, and then Douglas Adams died, but Hollywood was intent upon bringing us a movie we're going to talk about now, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's kind of weird hearing you introduce it with the Letterman voice go, Douglas Adams died! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I should have waited to be introduced. That's that's okay. I uh, improvised those intros, so it was out before I could stop myself. Uh, So apologies to fans of Douglas Adams. I mean, it's just a fact. It's been almost 20 years and it's uh, very sad, but... uh, uh, But get over it, guys. Come on. I just realised I'm just digging a grave, digging a bigger hole, a bigger grave. Who am I talking to? You can hear multitudinous voices in this podcast because I have, as always, my partner in podcasting crime, Stuart Late. Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. And never has that been more appropriate. We're joined this week, Natalie, by not one but two guests and fantastic guests at that. Now, our first guest is someone who you will have heard on the podcast uh, already, and that is from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast of Science, Comedy and Ignorance, Mr. Dan Beeston. Hey. Thank you for introducing me. Second guest is someone who you will hear on the podcast next week, but who we recorded with last week. So we've already podcasted with him, but you're not hearing that one until after this one. So that's a roundabout way of saying welcome on board, Mr. Tom Salinsky. Hey. Seems oddly appropriate that my (laughs) first appearance on the podcast should be a time loop. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, we're talking about this film and Tom is, of course, a very well-known um, Doctor Who reviewer for many years. You can see that on his blog. Uh, most I hope of- I'm not too well-known if I ever want a job writing on the show, but anyway. Yeah, good point. <laughs> a moderately well-known, <laughs> specific niche audience. But Tom is the host of the Best Pick podcast, which is doing great guns. Just won an award, I believe. Bronze in the arts and culture category at the British Podcast Awards, which also makes us, I believe, the only UK film podcast to place across that whole award ceremony. That's wow. fantastic. Congratulations. Is it an Olympic-style situation where you get uh, silver and gold as well? Yeah. Yes, yes. They, right, okay. <laughs> I, I didn't know whether it was British like, you know, you bronze medallion We only give bronze. Uh, and that's it, because we're from Britain, and uh, it would be yeah. very impolite to say that we had we'd won gold. I mean, goodness gracious me. I, I uh, no, there there are gold, I have to say, went to uh, Rule of Three, which is one of the best podcasts about being creative that anyone has made in recent years. They were the one podcast I didn't mind being beaten by because they're terrific. It's two, two comedy writers based in the UK who, in their own words, interview someone who makes comedy for a living about something funny that they love. By taking it apart and analysing it, they hope either to understand how it works or just quote bits from it until the time runs out. Both approaches are valid. <laughs> What's that podcast called? Rule of Three. Rule of Three. Okay. That sounds fun. And you don't mind being beaten by them, but fuck those guys who won silver. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. So, yes, award-winning podcast host, Dan, just podcast host, I guess. (laughs) Uh, uh, Award-nominated. 
Oh, oh that's oh. right. You were nominated for an award, weren't you? Yes, twice. We're losers twice over. Nice. Yeah, that's smart enough to know better. Uh, well, Stu and I have never even entered any kind of podcast awards, so that's how elite we are. We don't need the accolades of the masses. It's better not to run. Yeah. <laughs> the <answer. laughs> Never try. So, yes, yeah, so we have, I have assembled this uh, super group of nerds, I'm just going to be honest, because Stu and I mentioned in the For Your Eyes Only podcast something about hitchhikers, and I can't even be sure what it was, but I mentioned that I'm sure Dan would clarify and be up for discussing that film. Promptly, I got an email from Dan saying... Hundo P, basically. 100%. (laughs) And then I was messaging Tom just to say, oh, we're going to be pushing back. We're going to do this uh, interim podcast. Give me a week to catch up on, on all my Bond stuff, which has got off schedule, and I'll just push uh, Octopussy back until next week. Although... You're a massive Hitchhikers fan. Do you want to come on this podcast as well? And here we are. Uh, Now, I do want to start this podcast by apologising to all of you because when I said to Dan uh, and then subsequently to Tom in separate emails, would you like to come on and do this podcast, both of them gave me the same reply, which was, oh, no, I have to watch that film again. (laughs) Like the same exact reaction. So that might give you a sense of what we're in for tonight. I'm really excited to learn because I'm very much on the fringe of the Hitchhiker's universe. Um, my first introduction to it was from Dan when I first met him many, many, many years ago. And I think I've told the story before about how he refused to lend me a copy because I might break it or something. He lent me like one of his inferior copies. Yeah, hang, hang, hang on. Like listeners know I wouldn't lend you the copy that was signed by Douglas Adams. <laughs> like, sure. That's not yeah. a crazy, like, if you know Nat, you know that that's not a crazy thing to do, especially when you've got <laughs> a backup copy to lend out to people who will, let's face it, ruin it. <laughs> yeah. you, need, you need three, one to have, one to lose, one to lend. So um, I knew that Dan was just insanely obsessed with this story, and this is before the movie came out. So I wanted to start by maybe asking Stu and Tom, what are your experiences with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Um, Were they a formative part of your geeky growing up? What did I call that? Adolescence? Yeah, I think the TV series was my first exposure. So that would have been 1981. I would be nine or ten years old. And just at the right age to start to get some of the jokes and be kind of captivated by the world. And the TV series is a bit of a compromise, but in many respects, it's hugely ambitious. And the big thing that would have stopped the radio series from working on television, which was all the long stretches of narration, actually turned out to be the thing that most people remember from the TV series because they were brought to life with these incredible animations. I then wasn't able to watch the final episode of the television series because uh, I think we were on a a family holiday or visiting friends or something. And this was 1981. So we did not have a VCR. And in those days, if if you, if you weren't in, you couldn't watch. And that was the end of that. So I was devastated. And then the next day, my mum bought me, it probably wasn't the next day, actually. This is probably one of those childhood memories that's got all mixed up. But at some later date, my mum bought me the first novel. And since then, I've listened to the record albums and the radio series and bought the script book and played the adventure game 
and read all the subsequent novels and so on and so on. And it's uh, been enormously formative. And about two years ago, I got one of the jokes that I hadn't got when I was nine years old, which was a very exciting moment. <laughs> well, what, what was the joke? The joke is uh, when they're on board the Vogon constructor fleet, Ford says to Arthur, you better prepare yourself for the jump into hyperspace. It's unpleasantly, it's unpleasantly like, being, like drunk. being drunk. Yeah. What's so unpleasant about being drunk? Ask a glass of water. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I is... think I was I, I think I, re, I was on like reading eight or nine of the book yeah. when I finally got that joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So that specific Didn't take joke you 30 years, takes though. a long time. So uh, Dan Stu, is that sort of your experience as well, or how did you come to Hitchhikers? Well, a little bit for me, like like I I didn't see the TV show when it first aired because I don't think it if it did air in Australia I don't think I saw it. But so I came to it through the books, like a lot of people um do nowadays, especially. Uh, so I I loved the books. I I because and the thing was I was massively into Red Dwarf, which is a very much a spiritual successor <laughs> to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I had you know obviously watched a lot of the the TV shows of Red Dwarf and and had read the books that had come out of, of Red Dwarf. And then I had spotted that, oh, there's this other funny British space comedy series called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I guess I'll check that out. And then immediately fell in love. Like, I just couldn't believe how every single page was packed with, not j- j- like, jokes in the narration like, like and jokes in, like, the description of things that were, were happening and stuff like that. Things like, you know, in, when Arthur and Ford are on the uh, Vogon constructor fleet again at, at the start, you know, he, he inched his way down the corridor like he'd rather be yarding down it. You know, like stuff like that. Or the famous line about the Vogon ships, they hung in the sky in exactly <laughs> yes. the same way that bricks don't. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is a joke and also perfectly explains how insane that would be to actually witness. It's it's genius. It's absolutely genius writing. So, yeah, I, I obviously uh, eventually then caught up with the, the series and uh, I, I've heard I've, I've heard a little bit of the radio play. I haven't heard the, the full series, though, which I must I must rectify someday. But, yeah, no, I've read all the books, even the, the dubious uh, sixth book by Ewan Colfer, uh, uh, which I haven't read. I, I read the first page and then I just went, I'm not feeling this. It's a, read it at some point. a weird read. It's a weird read. Yeah, it's it's a man doing his very best Douglas Adams tribute, which uh, has mixed results. But um, it, yeah, love Douglas Adams. Uh, I'm not I'm not a super fan like you, Tom. But I, I'd be I'd be interested to know whether where Dan. So I guess I'm a, I'm a, a very enthusiastic casual fan, and I don't know where Dan falls on that spectrum. Given you have a signed copy, Dan, I think you're a bit further up the scale than I am. Probably a bit further up. They did show the TV show here in Australia. Um, I watched it when I was probably seven years old. But uh, I, I was like, oh, yeah, that was like I was all about anything with dinosaurs and or <laughs> and or spaceships in it. I was 100 <laughs> percent on board of. But it was when I was 12. Uh, my, you know, you know, teenagers that like kids are just idiots and they bang around and they're just sort of this swarm of idiots. But then teenagers are trying to figure out who they are and and everyone sort of connects to a certain thing. And Natalie connected to James Bond and some people connect to sports or some people connect to like trying to find romance and some people get, start taking drugs. And, it, and, and, and you're trying to figure out who you are when you're a teenager. And it was at this point on the sort of the, the cusp between childhood and teenagerhood where my house caught fire and burned down <laughs> along with all of my childhood things. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So you've got an inadvertent hard reset. Hard reset, <laughs> yeah. 
and so a couple of nights late after that, my mother was feeling quite um, uh, well, it felt like we, we'd lost everything. And so she took us out and bought us a couple of little bits and pieces. And I, I bought the first three books of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And these are books, especially the first one, about dealing with loss and not being able to fix it. Sure. And that's it's like this through line through all the Hitchhiker books is loss and and not solving the problem just stiff up a lip and mm. you've got to go through anyway and there was something about that and the cleverness of the writing and the surrealism and the pathos and philosophy of it and these books just glued themselves to my brain and informed <laughs> pretty much everything I've done ever since so probably one step up from us too on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, I do have from scale. a previous project a, a very, very hard Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy quiz, which I did offer Natalie for inclusion in this podcast. And oh, it's only yeah. 10 questions long. So I, I'm happy to share it with you at yeah, the, the suitable wanna, juncture. Do we want to do that now? Because if that's about the universe as a whole, and then we can move into, shift into kind can of... Do. Yeah, and that also means if, if it's just Dan and Stu saying, I don't know 10 times, then you can cut it. <laughs> yes. It's very like exactly. goodness. All right, I mean, very, very hard is... Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy quiz for uh, Natalie. If you know the answer, obviously you could chime in, but if, if not, maybe you can you can um, adjudicate. That's right. Oh, I'm feeling real a lot of pressure here. <laughs> uh, what is the I've, I've, I've read the books twenty times, but I haven't read them in at least a decade. Uh, this is also this is about all all versions of the story. Yeah. All right. Uh, question one: What is the name of Arthur Dent's daughter? Random. Correct. Oh, I just read that. No, I was just she like, God, that, what a today. weird question. <laughs> Apparently her full name is Random Frequent Flyer Dent. Random <laughs> is what I was after. As opposed uh, to his daughter, which is Polly Rocket Adams. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. Uh, which of these did not feature in, your, in the original 12-part radio series? Oh, Deep Lord. Thought, Hot Black Desiato, Mr. Prosser, The Shoe Event Horizon, Max Cordelplein, Zani Whoop, Gag Halfront. Zani Whoop. Incorrect. Damn. <laughs> that was that was a pure guess. <laughs> it's not Gag Halfront. He's in everyone. Um, it's the Shoe Event Horizon is only in the um in the in the radio play. Is, is this the, the all of the the whole radio play? Yeah. So, which of these does not feature in the original twelve part radio series? Okay, the original. What was the first two? Deep Thought and Hot Black Tessiato. Hot Black. Correct. Yeah, one of the bits that Douglas Adams rewrote to replace material that John Lloyd had written, because John Lloyd contributed oh. to the last two episodes of the radio series. Name three people who've played Trillion. Zoe Dashanel. Well, Zoe Dashanel. <laughs> <Correct. start. laughs> oh goodness, I could I couldn't wiki. say it without looking it up. I read this in a wiki today, and I'm just trying to remember. There was a <laughs> Susan. Yes. Something and a Jane. No. Jane. So yeah, no, Susan, Susan's all I've got. Susan Sheridan on radio, Sandra Dickinson on television, and Cindy Oswin on the record album. Right. And what about the person who played her in the uh, photographic illustrated version <laughs> of the book? Does I that don't count? think that quite rises to the level of playing. I don't remember her name either. <laughs> name the supercomputer who was asked to design a supernova bomb in Life, the Universe, and Everything. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a trick question. Um, it's not. It's just... It's just the computer has a name. What is it? Oh no! Is, is it is it Deep Thought? That, that's that's my. No, no. it's not Deep Thought. No. It's the one that got pulverized into 
particles, but you only hear the name. Oh, in the oh, yeah, from uh, yeah, the, from the third. What's done is done. I have fulfilled my function. Yeah, that that's the one. What's it called? Look, I'm going to sit here for about 12 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> All right, you just, you just cut that out. I'll cut out. <laughs> Don't worry. Ignore the sound of typing in the background. <laughs> uh, the answer is Hactar. Uh, how many Triganic Ningis to one pew? Oh, several trillion? Uh, eight. Damn it. <laughs> since a Ningi is a triangular rubber coin, 6,800 miles along each side, no one has ever collected enough to own one pew. Ningis are not negotiable currency because the galactic banks refuse to deal in fiddling small change. <laughs> Name three people who have written official Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy material who are not Douglas Adams. Neil Gaiman wrote one. No, I don't believe so. Oh. Uh, John Lloyd. Correct, yes. Uh, well, we just discussed. Uh, buh, 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 buh. Who did Salmon of Doubt? Other than, obviously, Douglas Adams. Salmon of Doubt was extract from, of Douglas Adams' material, so there was no actual writing done on oh, Salmon right. of Doubt. Adams and I've only read two of them, so I didn't realize there were three. You've said another name earlier in this podcast. You and Colfer, is that correct? Am I... Yeah. Oh, well, oh, right. And then we have Carrie Kirkpatrick, who wrote the screenplay, Dirk Maggs, who did the radio adaptations of the remaining books, and Steve Moretzky, who worked on the adventure game. Right. What is the best way to listen to Disaster Area, the plutonium rock band from the Gagrakaka mine zones? Entombed in a concrete vault, uh, several hundred miles away, or preferably on another planet. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From within large concrete bunkers, some 37 miles away from the stage, while the musicians themselves play their instruments by remote control from within a heavily insulated spaceship, which stays in orbit around the planet, or preferably a completely different planet. (laughs) What's in your inventory? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure game. Um, oh, I've, no, I've never a, played. I've got no idea. A piece of fluff, um, a strange object that your aunt gave you, but you don't know what it is. <laughs> These are all objects in the game, but they're not the, th- the two things that you start with. Oh, uh, oh. Yeah, those are in the pockets of your. Oh, oh, uh, there's an Altoid or something. Like it's a, it's a, it's uh, a for headaches. Again, uh, so you're close though. The first thing you start with is a splitting headache, <laughs> and the other is no tea. Right. <laughs> uh, this is the easiest question what is the name of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy theme music which douglas adams found on the eagles album one of these nights journey to the sorcerer journey of the sorcerer <laughs> yes and last question who is the only actor to appear in all six radio series every episode of the tv series both lps and the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy movie simon jones correct yes yeah, yeah. And that is my very hard quiz that, that was a, a hard quiz. Hard quiz. <laughs> I only knew like vaguely answers to some because I've literally been reading the Wikipedia page. <laughs> you did pretty well, Dan, though, for something sprung on you. I have to say. Well, I, as I say, I've, I lived and breathed this for the, fir- the, the first decade of adulthood. It's funny when you say about connecting to a comedy thing as well, because you said, you know, teenagers connect to James Bond. But James Bond, for me, kind of goes back Further than that, probably as a teenager, it became um, a lot of British comedy. So Blackadder, Yes Minister and Red Dwarf. Like Stu said, I was mad keen on Red Dwarf as well. Um, So it really became a lot of British comedy of the, I guess, 80s more so that I latched onto. But I never got to Hitchhikers, which is really interesting. 
Um, but yeah, love me some Red Dwarf. Haven't watched it, any of the recent stuff <laughs> that they've done, which I really must. Weirdly but... enough, I never really connected with Red Dwarf. Isn't that funny? Yeah, much to Natalie's horror. <laughs> Was it? It's it's very close to Hitchhikers, so I wonder if it's too close for you. It's very British, but it's not quite as clever as Hitchhikers, and it's a bit dirtier. Than... Yeah, it's a bit sillier, yeah. Or not uh, sillier, but a bit and... dirtier. Yeah, you're right. Sillier, but not as surreal. And it's interesting that I didn't connect with Hitchhikers because all that kind of stuff that, you know, Tom's been been quoting and that you've said in those lovely turns of phrases and Vogon ships hanging like brickstone and that kind of thing, maybe I didn't quite get there because I love like a Blackadder turn of phrase and, you know, you're about as welcome as, what is it, the man who cleans out the public toilets in Aberdeen. They'd go for wee jock pooplong McPlop every time. Like, I loved <laughs> wordplay like that, Blackadder stuff and Red Dwarf stuff. But, yeah, I'm really surprised I didn't get more into Hitchhikers now. Um, so at the risk of doing your job for you, Natalie, what did you make of seeing the movie and had you seen it before you watched it for this podcast? Uh, yes, I had. I saw it when it came out because it was a big deal. And Greg from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast as well is a Hitchhikers fan, not to the level of Dan or you, Tom. I'd say he's probably more around the stew level. Um, <laughs> as in we're doing a rank here. So he knows more than no, I sure, do yeah. for sure. <laughs> and I've read, because of Dan, I've read the first. He's, he's the bronze. And as we said, there is no shame in bronze. Absolutely not. It's a very, very <laughs> good I'm happy with bronze. <laughs> Well, I'm the person who just missed out and did all that training <laughs> and just didn't even get on the, the pedestal. And I'm uh, the person who tried to have someone slash her with a ice skate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we went to see it and I remember enjoying it and I remember kind of Greg leaning over and saying things like, oh, that's this, or laughing because he got jokes that I didn't quite remember. But I remember thinking it was fine enough and like all adaptations, possibly not as good as it could have been. But I have to say, re-watching it for this podcast, I didn't mind it. And so having you guys, I thought it'd be really interesting because you have that deeper connection. There's obviously something to that because I found certain bits of it and Stu and I did do the minute challenge before we got on and I said, we can use it, we don't have to use it. But one of the things I wrote down, which was I found Marvin, the paranoid android, way more annoying this time <laughs> than when I saw it the first time because I love Alan Rickman and so I thought it was quite charming. And I don't know, maybe that's a reflection of my mindset at the time where I was like, yeah, I identify with the sad robot. <gasps> It's 2005. <laughs> but I found him way Weirdly, more... Alan Rickman appears to be channeling, to, to pick another very obscure British comedy reference, Alan Rickman appears to be channeling Julian and Sandy from Round the Horn. It's a very camp performance. It doesn't sound like Alan Rickman. It's very strange. If he'd just done it as Alan Rickman, I think it would have been much more effective. Yeah, I think he was cast for being Alan Rickman. Like, like they were like, yeah. we, we need an Alan Rickman type. And they're like, can we just get Alan Rickman? And then he showed up and he, he's not doing Alan Rickman. He's doing like a weird, yeah, like a, a weird different character. Yeah, and I just, for some reason, it really grated on me. And so I felt more simpatico when Arthur Dent kept going, you know, Marvin, and I felt a bit more simpatico <laughs> within that time. And it's not, I can see how, um, particularly the, the radio me medium, because... I used to listen to a lot of comedy on tape and things like that. And um, you can, when things are written for radio and written to be oral, and I imagine, and you guys can correct me, but I imagine they would have used lots of sound effects and they would have created that theatre of the mind. 
then I can see how wonderful and freeing and kind of, you know, galactic for want of a better term, that experience would have been, which I think when you have a movie and you put things, you, you give things a visual language and you set them in stone, I can see how that would never match up to what people have experienced through imagining it from the novel yeah. or kind of hearing it through a radio play. And so we talk about Zaphod's second head. Oh. Well, actually, yeah. if I can just make a point about what Nat <laughs> yeah, said, sorry. because, um, I mean, the, much of what made the book amazing was the narration and these turns of phrase and the explanations. Like, it, Douglas Adams is not a great storyteller. He's an ideas man. <laughs> and... <laughs> But a film's strength is showing, not telling. And so you end up having all these little bits that don't... It, it's like all, this, all, all these chunks that are like from the setup of a joke, but without the punchlines of the joke. And so it's just a sort of a weird and badly made film. Well, especially <laughs> well, because whoever put it together, whoever put that script together, and apparently like... Adams did do the first draft of this movie and had and several of the uh, changes were his, but then they kind of ran with it. I think that they that sort of gave them permission to really mess around with some stuff. Well, his first draft would have taken four hours. <laughs> like, I was going to say, so this is this is my understanding of what happened with the writing, and I think it goes right to the heart of what's the matter with this film. So. Kerry Kirkpatrick, who is the screenwriter who was given mm. this job, was given access to Douglas Adams' hard drive. And on there were dozens of drafts of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie scripts written for different producers at different times in order to meet various different demands. Oh. And so he had this treasure trove, new Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy material, which nobody had ever seen. So he tried to write a script which told the story that the fans were familiar with, beginning with Arthur lying in front of the bulldozer and going to Magrathea and so on and so on, but trying to include as much of this new material as possible and ended up, as Dan said, with a script that was about four hours long. So what happened next was everything got cut down, but rather than deleting whole segments, everything just gets shaved away at. Uh, mm. And so now what you have is a script which is still too long, but now uh, where none of the bits which the fans will be familiar with really work anymore. And then I actually found a, online a draft script from 2003. And it's wow. really very interesting to compare this to the finished film because it's evident that another round of cuts has happened. And it's not clear whether these cuts happened to make the shooting script or whether they happened in the edit. But time and time again, What's gone in this final round of cuts is mm. the jokes. Yeah. <laughs> and which wouldn't be so bad if what emerged was a coherent story that made sense. But I saw this film in 2005 when it came out with an American friend who happened to be visiting. And she had had zero exposure to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy up to this point. And uh, when we came out of the film, she just said to me, I have no idea what was happening in that entire, in that entire <laughs> well, story. If I can relate a, a small anecdote which probably bears you out, Tom, is when my father, years ago now, got, a, I think he bought a DVD. He bought a Blu-ray player. That's right. And I think as part of the deal, they got given like a selection of DVDs and one of them was Hitchhikers. And he put it on and he was showing me the high definition nature of the Blu-ray player, how much better it is. <laughs> and he put on Hitchhikers. He's like, oh, this movie, it's a space movie. 
And so he put it on just to show off the dolphin sequence at the beginning. Right. Of all these jumping dolphins and the clear blue waters and the colours and stuff. And then he was like, I tried watching this more, but it doesn't make any sense. I don't know what's going on. More rubbish. To be honest, yeah, if you know Marcus, he's not Mm. one for space things. Um, Although if it was like astronauts to the moon, probably. But Natalie's dad's one-word review of the entire Star Wars saga is, Garbage. Yeah. Um, but to be fair, that's his one-word review of everything. Although, can I can I relate? My dad has become obsessed with a Netflix show that's like a Hallmark show. It's oh called, wow. Yeah, it's so funny because of lockdown, they sort of reinstated their Netflix subscription and started watching TV. And of course, my dad's always been like, "Oh, TV rubbish." But then. He starts talking about this show called Call, no, When the Heart Calls, I think it's, or When Calls the Heart. It's a weird phrase. And it's oh, based wow. on a series of books. And it's about, it's sort of set around the turn of the 20th century, early 20th century. And it's about a woman who moves to somewhere in Canada and there's a Mountie involved and it's local village life and coal mining and various things. Anyway, my dad, obsessed totally obsessed and he starts telling me storylines from this well no so there was the girl and she came in and they had a ball and then she had one boy and he liked her and then there's the mountie and he, she he likes her it's just a nice show natalie it's just a nice just a lovely show and they're very nice and then he's like become and then i looked it up and there's like a full fandom called arties they exist <laughs> uh so my dad's become a fandom and then because because my dad doesn't understand how Netflix works or how series works or how TV works, he's like, oh, and it all finished. That was it, end of series six. So I like literally Googled, found the Wikipedia page, new series coming, uh, has already broadcast in, in the US and will come to Netflix later in 2020. You right. should have seen the smile on his face. <laughs> he was so well, excited. <laughs> I'm glad that he's found something to entertain him. But I just never would have thought that, like, this very sort of charming, heartwarming uh, fish out of water country bumpkin show. <laughs> well, look, I, I often I often say that the only everyone loves soap operas. They just don't realize they love soap operas. Like <laughs> people who like professional wrestling are actually really great soap opera fans. They just need it to include punching. Yes. People who don't <laughs> think Star Wars is garbage like soap operas, but they <laughs> like right. them in space. Yes. So uh, my experience of watching the film, I was actually quite enthusiastic about it i thought all the casting basically sounded great yeah i was completely open to the fact this would be a reinvention of the story and Mm -hmm. i thought that that was a fine thing to do Mm -hmm. i didn't mind the dolphins at the beginning but i thought it was a bit of a strange place to start the story but okay and then i was sort of reassured at how familiar the opening shots of arthur and his uh waking up and seeing the bulldozers outside seemed and Mm. then it's in quick, the first though. scene between Arthur and Mr. Prosser, I instantly lost all faith in the film. Wow. Because, really? well, so this is the way this scene is supposed to go. This is, again, this is mm. not even written from the book or the radio script or anything. This is from the draft screenplay. Uh, so Arthur's lying in front of the bulldozer and Prosser says, this bypass has got to be built and it's going to be built. You should have made your protest months ago. The first I heard about it was when a workman came yesterday. Asked if he'd come to clean the windows. He said, no, he'd come to demolish the house. Didn't tell me straight away, of course. Oh, no, first he wiped a couple of windows and charged me a fiver. Then he told me. <laughs> Look, these plans have been on display at the local planning office now for a year. On display? I had to get out of the cellar. 
That's the display department. Yes, I eventually found them in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, beware of the leopard. Mm. <laughs> Mr. Dent, have you any idea how much damage that bulldozer would suffer if I just let it roll straight over you? How much? None at all. Now, all the things you laughed at have been yes. cut from that scene. That's right. Yeah. I remember and thinking that when I saw it. Yeah. Jokes out, why have the scene at all? It doesn't have, it doesn't work. Mm. You know, if you're if you're going to cut that deeply, start the story with Arthur coming around on board the Vogon constructor fleet. Yeah, yeah. Could that, that would be that would be a much more kind of savage cut. But as we're not getting all the Douglas Adams material that we're used to anyway, why not just junk it all and actually Maybe. spend the rest of the time telling and the story? Why before? have someone lying down in front of a bulldozer when there are like nine other bulldozers <laughs> and he can't yes. lay down in front of all of them? Mm. Yeah. Um, why? Maybe it was because they need to establish what's going to be lost. And so just so everyone is aware, they need to show some shots of planet Earth. Oh, so people are unfamiliar with planet Earth. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but also, I feel like it's a bit of a, you know, it's he kind of lives this very idyllic, rustic, rural English life. You know, Arthur Dent's house is not probably where a lot of English people, British people yes, but, live. But, but then show the house. Don't show him lying in the mud. Like, well, they do. They show him getting up in the morning and walking down and walking outside and making a cup of tea and the mice run past. He's what? He sits at his table and everything starts vibrating. Yes. And boom, you're off. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't he making a cup of tea? Anyway, doesn't matter. Point is, uh, that makes sense because they've gone for that. Well, we just need this is the joke. The seller line is the joke, but. It's actually a setup. But he doesn't. He doesn't real play joke. like a. He doesn't really play like a joke though. Like, like it's a joke line, but it just kind of clangs. It's just like, oh, okay. It's like, so like, the, the joke is that it, it builds and builds and builds yes. in ridiculousness to the sign saying "Beware of the Leopard." Yeah. Yes. Like, and the version I quoted, yeah. which I said is, is from the draft screenplay, is cut down. The version in the radio show <laughs> and in the novel is mm. about fifty percent longer. So you know oh, you God. can do this sympathetically, and he had a go at doing that. But someone yeah. has come in at some point and said, you know, we, we've got to lose another twenty-five percent, and you can't do that piecemeal. It's death by a thousand cuts. Yes. Mm. Yes. Okay. And, and that's the problem with the next scene at the bar as well. The problem with all the scenes. I, mean, I could pretty much do this for every scene. <laughs> yeah. Every scene is either redundant, and we'll come to, <laughs> we'll come to that in a minute, uh, or has been sh- so shaved down that anything which made it exciting or interesting or, or most importantly funny has been lost. <laughs> Can which I would be fine if the story made sense, but it doesn't. There's a thing where Ford is confused, makes a, 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 a research error and assumes that cars are the dominant life form. But in mm. the book, you kind of get the impression that he works it out when he gets there before he tries to shake hands with a car that's running at him. Yeah. Like yeah. Shaking hands, like of course, is universal, uh, but uh, modes of wheel <laughs> transportation are specific to Earth. It's yes. like, he, yeah, it's... Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Um, what do we, what do we think of Moss Def as as Ford, by the way? Do we have a do we want to quickly delve into that? Um, what what did you guys make of of Moss Def? Uh, to me, he seemed kind of suitably odd, as in you sort of want, I guess, your Ford prefect to look human, but slightly askew, like he's standing in front of a trace outline of himself on the wall, but just doesn't quite fit. That's probably a really bad metaphor. That was what my mind kind of imagined. No, no, I think, I think a, he's a... wonderfully odd, mm. but I think he doesn't fit the character as it's written. 
And I think they either needed to get someone that fit more of a Ford prefect that we're more familiar with from the Hitchhiker's Guide, or they needed to tailor it more to him. Because he's he can do odd, but he's mumbling his way through these very complex lines where he just seems he just kind of he, you lose half the half the line because he's well, the sound is terrible. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, about half his dialogue is looped. I don't know if that was a problem with onset recording or whether it was just that Mos Def couldn't get his tongue around these lines. There's one bit. So there are some bits I like, uh, and they're, they're few and far between, but they're worth pointing out. Uh, <laughs> When Ford and Arthur are thrown out of the airlock of the Vogon constructor ship, there's a, yes. a joke in the original script and in the earlier versions of the story, which is funny, but it's a bit kind of it's a bit undergraduate review where Arthur says it's at times like this when I'm about to be ejected into deep space uh, that I really wish I'd listened to what my mother told me when I was young. And Ford says, why? What did she tell you? And Arthur says, I don't know. I didn't listen. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it, It's fine. But it, and in the in the movie. What you have is most deaf saying, do you want a hug? Yeah. And Martin Freeman going, no. And that's it. for this cast and for 2005, that's arguably a better joke. Mm. Yeah. And if they'd had the guts just to say, well, let's let's tell this story and let's infuse it with a, a bit of Douglas Adams flavor. But let's not be limited by that. Let's see what this cast can do. Yeah. And let's see how we can bring this up to date and bring a new bit of seasoning into the mix. Again, it might have had a, a chance. And that tiny moment, I think, demonstrated that there is a, a, a shadow version of this, which avoids this trap of being on the one hand so devoted to the source material that they can't do anything radical with it. And at the same time, not actually understanding what makes it work. Mm. And there was a lovely little bit of a slapstick just after that moment where they're waiting for the door in front of them to open and they yes. drop out the bottom. <laughs> yes. yes. Which yes. was genuinely also funny. Really funny. Yeah. yeah. And, well, that, and that's a good film joke. Yes. Like you can't tell on radio if someone's dropped one way or the other. Mm. But that's a good Natalie, film. What is um what is Ford's surname? Uh, Prefect. It's never spoken on screen. And uh, oh, you yeah. and Dan, do you get that joke? I get it, but only because I've read the explanation of the joke. <laughs> yes. Yeah, me too. It's a car. <laughs> yes. And and yeah. and I and I um and I sort of got it from context when I read the book. <laughs> but if it's never spoken on screen, then why is he then why is he trying to shake hands with the car? That doesn't. I very well ask. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you oh, what, though, there is a bit that we've skipped over, which is absolutely gorgeous movie-making humour, which is when they're trying to thumb a ride and they zoom out from bang on Arthur and Ford all the way into outer space for the destruction of planet Earth. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah and they're playing music and it's like... or something as it pans yes. back. Yes. I thought that that was absolutely beautiful. And the fact that they 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 drag it out, yeah, yeah, it just keeps going. And then they go out, 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 out. You see that you see the planet Earth, and then it just sort of goes, poof, and then it's yeah. gone. I thought that was yeah, that was fantastic. And then yeah. it moves so beautifully into what I'm assuming is where the first titles were supposed to be. Yes, that yes. beautiful thing of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy spinning through space. That is great. And you're like. Well, then why did they do the dolphin thing at the beginning? And it's like, because when you read about the making of the film, the people who were writing it were like so 
charmed about the musical number with the dolphins and you listen to the jokes in that song and they're not right. <laughs> they're, not, they're just not right. They're just not tonally right for the do you story. Know what it, do you know what it reminded me of? It, it, I had an instant um, Gallivant vibe off it. I don't know whether that means oh. anything to you to it. It'll oh. mean something to Natalie. Yes. I do love Gallivant. Yes, I love Gallivant. Which is a show that I deeply, deeply love. That That is a show that was made for, specifically for me and about 12 other people. Um, yeah, count me in. I'm yeah, just yeah. A, a member of and all Gallivant 12 of them watched. <laughs> it's, it's so kind of a, sad. Maybe, maybe prepared the ground a bit for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. But, but uh, you that's know, right, I, 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 that, that it's a very specific type of humour and it doesn't gel with the rest of the movie. And I want to see the movie that that song is the opener <laughs> for because I think it'd be great. Again, it's one of those things where if they just locked into like, okay, this is the, this is the voice. This is the humor. This is the, the sense of, of, of humor that we're going to go with and just go with it and have the courage to sort of lock in behind it. But they didn't, they, they just said, Hey, here's a fun song that we wrote and we're going to open the movie with it. Cause we want a big funny number to open the, the movie with. And then everything's, everything else is still kind of weirdly nihilistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it does allow you to really show off the value and uh, quality of a Blu-ray player. So, sure. <laughs> unlike the those water stock, splashes, unlike the stock footage that the film starts with, the weirdly <laughs> low-res stock footage. Is it? Yeah, oh, like mean... the birds and the mush- mushrooms blooming, and the, the yeah, there's there's a lot of stock footage in this movie. Okay, For... I don't. I remember when For a they film kind of... that's not by Ed Wood, there's a lot of stock footage. <laughs> <laughs> so can I ask you all something? With the love story between Arthur and Trillian, or Trisha Trillian, yes. is that from the books? It is not. No, I don't know. So the, uh, the party is in the book, although mm. I think its placement in the narrative here is incredibly clumsy. Flashbacks mm. are very tricky things, I think, and they have to be catered for much more elegantly than uh, is done here so ford meeting trillion at the party and trillion going off with zaford is is canon mm. but their burgeoning romance over the rest of the story is not and if you've seen the behind the scenes making of video then there's a hilarious scene where i think with, with a certain amount of self-awareness but nevertheless inflicting quite a serious injury on the material is an american producer it may actually have been jay roach i'm not sure saying uh yeah there there are certain things in the story which we're going to require uh to make it uh more of a like a, a hollywood character arc uh so we're going to have to have more of the romance in there and <laughs> i was thinking about this today because uh, about a, a, a few weeks after seeing the movie i started thinking about okay how would i have done this and I thought to make the story coherent for someone who doesn't know it already, I think you have to make a, a strong decision about what it's really about. And I think what it's really about is deep thought Magrathea. So you've got to have the destruction of Earth and then you reveal that the Earth was a computer and it was mm. destroyed minutes before it completed its task. So I thought, well, in that case, I think my cold open would be uh, deep thought. Oh, that's interesting. You begin okay. with deep thought. You begin with uh, the program will take me a little while to run. Again, ideally with a joke in there. Unfortunately, <laughs> the program will take me a little while to run. How long? Seven and a half. Not till next week. Million years. <laughs> <laughs> 
So and have, a, and that, have, that creates a real mystery about then what's going to happen next. And then at some later point, point maybe when you arrive at Magrathia, the way it's done in the in the books, then you you reveal deep thought building the earth and, and so on and so on. Uh, and then just today I was thinking, OK, so suppose I'd handed that draft in and they'd said and my draft would end the way the uh, the TV series and the first radio series ends on prehistoric Earth. So, Natalie, I don't know if you, uh, how familiar you are with this, but um, at the end of the story, at the end of the, the first uh, radio series, Ford and Arthur end up trapped on prehistoric Earth and they discover that the uh, Earth has been essentially invaded because a... Uh, a space arc has crashed with a lot of useless people on it who do things <laughs> like deodorize telephones and uh, and cut hair and make documentaries. Uh, <laughs> another, another civilization has got rid of an entirely useless third of its population and they're now mingling with the Neanderthals and the cavemen. And so uh. no doubt the, the whole Earth computer program is, is ruined anyway. Uh, and uh, Arthur's been trying to teach the cavemen to play Scrabble in order to try and help their <laughs> development, but it isn't working. <laughs> and they speculate that maybe they could discover what the question is if Arthur, in whose mind the the, the framework must exist for this, if he pulls Scrabble letters out of a bag blindfold. And what they come up with is the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything is, what do you get if you multiply six by nine? <laughs> oh, he says that at the end, doesn't he, in the movie? There's a little reference to that, I think. Yes. Yeah. Where he's like, what is uh, the question? What's six by nine? What's, and what's so I just the... thought, so that's the way I want to end the story. How do I get the romance in there? And I thought, well, I'll, I'll make it Arthur and Trillian. Instead oh, of Arthur and Ford. Ford. Yeah. yeah, I'll make Arthur and Trillian trapped on prehistoric Earth. It doesn't matter who it is. And then yeah. I can seed in some other bits of their relationship, blah, 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 blah. And you could make that work perfectly well. But you have to, like I said, you have to be decisive. You have to say, mm. uh, I want to try and get the best out of this material. And that means I can't be, uh, I, I have to abandon the idea of being completely faithful to it. Yeah. And also not make Arthur so much like an incel. Who's like, yes. hey, Johnson. Yeah, I really noticed is, that this time around. Yeah, yeah this time around, uh, it's a lot stranger to have him go, oh, I see. So yeah. you're just like guys with the blonde hair, do you? Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. And so she's like, prissy. Yeah. Like he can deserves I, can I her. A, can I drop a potentially hot take? Oh, please. Yeah. Martin Freeman is badly miscast as Arthur Dent. Wow. That I, I personally think, I, I didn't think so when I first saw it, but like going back to it now, I'm just like, I. I don't like him. <laughs> like, like his, his. I think that might be directing, though. Like, I don't think yeah. anyone's well directed in this movie. I, I you just, yeah. Again, it's it one of those things fun. where the material is written. I, I feel like he's playing a different character than what's on the page. The Trillian Arthur relationship is weird. I wrote down as I was watching it. Trillian's such a dream girl. She's cool when you're cowardly. She's brave when she needs to be, and she lets you watch her take a shower. Yes. <laughs> Whenever I think of the phrase manic pixie dream girl, I always think of Zoe Deschanel. And I realize in no more movie than this is she the manic pixie dream girl. She She definitely made a career out of playing that type of character. She is an idealized woman by a man who thinks he deserves the woman, but some Chad with two heads came along and stole her away. (laughs) (laughs) You asked about the two heads, Tom. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was going to say. So the, I, the radio series, it's a throwaway gag, but in the television series, it becomes an extraordinary amount of effort for very little return to try and make it work visually. And here, well, what do you think? They basically decide, let's not try. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's pay some lip service to it and then emit, and then concoct an entire subplot so we can remove it entirely. 
like when I read the books, I never visualize Zaphod with two heads. It's like if someone wrote that he wore, always wore a purple jacket and I just didn't think about the fact that he wore a purple <laughs> jacket. And so I think that that's probably a good idea because otherwise it would be quite distracting. Because, again, very little payoff. It's a throwaway gag in the radio series that future versions were just saddled with. And, again, I, I don't know why in the TV series they didn't just ignore it because nothing turns on it. Mm. And in the TV series, you know, bless them, this is the BBC Special Effects Department in 1981 who did make an animatronic head and did design yes. the costume so that Mark Wing Davy could wear it and it wouldn't look too lopsided. And it, uh, it it stood a chance of working. But one of the big problems, I don't know if you guys know this, is that they would re- in, in those days they'd rehearse on the studio floor and plan the camera moves and so on and then go for a take. And what would happen was during rehearsal, the head would work fine. And then when they <laughs> oh, came no. to shoot, they discovered that the batteries had run down. Yeah. Uh, and so most of the time in the actual takes, it just hangs there looking ridiculous. Oh, no. Yeah. But actually, the Zayford's three arms... I think are more convincing on the television series from 1981 than they are on the big budget Hollywood movie from 2005. Yeah, the arm, the arm does look uh, very strange. And, and then there's a weird moment where after they take his one of his heads, he says, "Oh, I really need a, my I really need my third arm." So the dialogue saying that they took his third arm, but there's no reference that he took anything other than the head. What what the fuck's going on in this movie? And then the other thing is that the whole point of view is he's got to go to Magrathea to get the point of view gun, which is something that Douglas Adams had created for the movie in one of those, I imagine, drafts that you were mentioning, Tom, or some you know extra material. But uh, the Wikipedia, anyway, seems to indicate that he created that idea of the point of view gun yeah it's and kind that, of a riff on the total perspective vortex which is something which is in the second radio series and i think it's also in the restaurant at the end of the universe novel and there's actually quite a clever element because it, it it puts it forward at the beginning and then to have marvin at the end get a hold of it gets two unrelated ideas and puts them together in quite an what should be quite an interesting way but, but also i'll tell you why i don't think it works and that's because th- this version of the Vogons, they've really gone to town with them being uh, bureaucracy gone mad, mm. which is something that is said in the earlier versions, but it's very rarely seen. They're generally seen as more kind of thuggish and just sort of like generic green bug-eyed monsters from bad science fiction. Mm. But here there's this whole thing which just felt very over familiar to me of trying to navigate through Vogon bureaucracy, uh, which uh, I preferred it when Asterix did it in the 12 tasks of Asterix. Yeah. Uh, and it also got a, a whiff of Terry Gilliam about it. It doesn't feel like Douglas Adams. Maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. Like Brazil what established is, perf- is that the Vogons uh, will just clock off for lunch when the time comes and don't relentlessly pursue their quarry, mm. which means at the end of the film, when they stop relentlessly pursuing their quarry, it doesn't have any impact. Yes. Because we've seen them do that already without the point of view gun. Oh, yeah. Yes, they get... don't care. No. And you need your villains to care. Yeah, and yeah. they seem to let they seem to let Trillian go just because they filled in the right form and Zaphod's yeah. there. Yeah. It's, that that whole section is a total closed narrative loop. Let me just walk you through this. So <laughs> around, around 45 minutes into the film... The mice sabotage the navigation system. 
That means yes. that they arrive at Vultvodl 6 instead of Magrathea. They're then forced to abandon the Heart of Gold for an escape capsule. Then Zaphod loses his second head, which makes Zaphod dumb. Then <laughs> Ford makes uh, Zaphod smart again. Yes, with Then Lemon. they lose Trillian. Then they deprive Marvin of his left arm. Then they get Trillian back again. Then they give Marvin his arm back again. <laughs> and they get back on board the Heart of Gold. And now the mice have fixed the navigation system. And now they arrive at Magrathea. And we're now <laughs> one hour and ten minutes in. Having yeah. accomplished, as far as I can tell, nothing. Yes. <laughs> well, they and have for a film now... which is cutting scenes to the bone so yeah. that they are no longer playable to take 25 minutes to achieve so little is frankly unforgivable. The Can only I... thing that sticks, I think, is the fact that I think that's also where they meet Hamakavula. Yes. Which, Correct. frankly, I would be very happy if they had cut that out of the film as well. Because, holy crap. What Can a waste, I, what a waste, what what a waste of Malcolm They could just find the point of view gun. It doesn't need to be a yeah. fetch quest. And and the thing that I wanted to mention is that you never see him return and get his yeah. second head back. There's no, there's no <laughs> resolution of that story point at all. Mm. And you wonder, are they hubristic enough that they were waiting for the sequel? <laughs> it uh, does sound the closing lines do sound a bit yeah. like they're setting up for the sequel um well the yes the wikipedia seems to indicate that it just didn't make that much money at the box office and uh, the director told martin freeman oh look it just hasn't done that well we won't probably won't go ahead with the sequel um can i talk about something that i really like sure I love the design of the Vogon and the Vogon ships and the Vogon city. The design of that stuff looks like it's from a film that's much better. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the Jim Henson creature shop, oh, I believe. Oh, is it? Yeah. And it's so this... great that they're physical costumes and puppets, not yeah. CG. Yeah. They look so good. If they were doing it today, they would be CG creatures and it yeah. wouldn't be quite as, as visceral. It'd be like in that first season of Doctor Who with the um, Slovene, uh, yes. the Raxacoricophalloptorius, um, just because I learned that word and I like to say it. But um, <laughs> when they're like in scenes, they're just like lumbering dudes in big lizard plastic or rubber costumes. But then when they're CGI on the hunt, they're like super fast, agile. Yes. yes. If they can't make the CGI match, but it would have been like that. You would have seen Vogons just lumbering and then they would have put the CGI mass running or something. There's a thing that happens on Vogsphere where there's some sort of, uh, there's some sort of system that's a defense system that sort of slaps them in the face. Mm. Yes. And that's new too. That's apparently like another that's new too. Adams idea. And it, I didn't realize it when I first watched it. I think I had to have it pointed out to me. Those things are creatures that live on the planet Vogsphere. They evolved simultaneously to the Vogons, hence why the Vogons' faces are so flat and their noses so high, and why the Vogons don't have ideas, because these things strike you if you have ideas. And you go, oh, oh that's a Douglas Adams thing. I want to read what he wrote, not watch what uh. they do. <laughs> yes. I see. It's like um, co coexisting evolution, or what would you call it? Uh, that, that, that's such a Douglas Adams thing. That's very neat. I didn't know that. I thought that was a defense system. I thought that was something the Vogons had constructed to slap out any ideas, any funny ideas out of you. That's because the filmmakers are fucking morons. <laughs> <laughs> 
they took the writing of the greatest writer that's ever walked the earth and they just <laughs> fucked it. They fucked it. There's okay. a bit of this where Zaphod pulls a gun on 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 Arthur and Ford and Marvin and says, freeze, and Marvin responds, I'm a robot, not a refrigerator. Oh, that, line, that line sucks. What? Who, who, who listens to that and goes, yes, that's a good idea. We're going to write that down for later, and we're going to spend money on it. <laughs> Morons. That didn't offend me. Isn't that weird? I'm, <laughs> I'm coming there out. There's one to... other, I think, really good idea in this film. There's one other bit where they did what I think a good adaptation does do, which is to look at the source material and begin to just question it and look for pockets where things have gone unexplored. Mm. And that's the idea that Trillian doesn't know the Earth has been destroyed. Yeah. And that's a really good addition to the story. And in better hands, would have done a great deal to flesh Trillian out and make her a little bit more than a standard off-the-shelf Zoe Deschanel manic pixie dream girl. Mm. It's not really handled properly, but I, I had a little kind of ray of hope watching the movie when I realised, oh, of course, Trillian left the Earth weeks earlier, so she mm. wouldn't know it had been destroyed. Who's going to tell her, and how was she going to find out? Mm. Mm. Yeah, and and then, but Unfortunately, when she does find out, she's more just sort of petulant yeah. that Zaphod was such a such a dunderhead and not like upset about the destruction of the earth uh i mean she seemed to be the kind of person who just didn't give a crap anyway like not to rain on trillion but the way that they've structured her in the film is this whole quit your job come to madagascar what matters live in the now what you know i don't know i it, yes of course you would think but then arthur isn't even that upset i, I think it's like a shock thing yeah, yeah. In the books, but, he's like inconsolable, and Ford has to be like, "Hey, you know what? Come on, come on, come on an adventure with me." And Arthur's like, "I don't really want to, but I there's no other option. He has to." Because <sighs> his, <laughs> his house burnt down. <laughs> yeah. um, I was going to ask, uh, just looking at some of the things that I did write on my minute challenge, and Stu, if you have any others that uh, come to mind, can we discuss? Sam Rockwell. Oh, my God. Sam Rockwell is amazing. I'm not sure who this person is, but I've seen The Moon. It's great. Ooh. I've seen him in other films. It's great. I don't know who was in this movie. <laughs> I, yeah. I go Sam Rockwell used to have a word with whoever this guy is who looks an awful lot like him, yeah. uh, who is uh, is getting his work, but who has no noticeable talent. Really? I didn't <laughs> He's dreadful. Have... He's dreadful. Okay. I, there, I, there are moments. There are moments in, in the movie where I'm like, oh, that that's really good. I like that. But then he, the, the performance is wildly inconsistent. It, like, it is, and it's not. Yeah. And my then they, they take his brain, and it makes him even worse <laughs> somehow. I was going to say my favourite moment of him, and it's literally just a small throwaway inclusion, is when I think there's some sort of intergalactic news broadcast talking about him as the president. And there's just this on the, you know, the scene, the, the how they soup up uh, behind newsreaders, you know, imagery. There's just him on a mountaintop, like, doing karate kicks. Yeah. And it's just that moment of he's like, Earth president. And he's just, like, doing random karate kicks. I don't know. Something about that made me laugh very much. Um just the incongruity of a president, a galactic president. And the thing, but the thing is, like, Zaphod's not stupid. He's just completely self-absorbed. Like, like I, I think that's something that they really didn't 
get a good handle on throughout the course of the film because it, it, yeah because he's yeah. A, he's a useless character to watch like for the second half of the film it, he may as well not be there and mm. the same for ford ford stops yeah. being interesting as soon as they reach the heart of gold this film is about arthur being really horror horror horrible and occasionally <laughs> and in the direction of zaphod and Zoe Dashnell being unattainable until she's suddenly not. Yeah, and and she could have blown it with the one guy who who would have made a difference or something. And it's like really, but he's done nothing yeah, yeah. to to give yeah. that impression. Yeah, he's a horrible guy who just hangs around while she showers, <laughs> yeah. and makes pointed comments about her current boyfriend. <laughs> They have so Damn. little chemistry on screen together, it sometimes looks like they're superimposed into the same shot. <laughs> it's oh, you very mean Dan, weird. Uh, and, uh, and or Stu, actually, uh, do you guys know the genesis of the third Hitchhiker's novel, Life, the Universe, and everything? I do. I do know the, the genesis of this, and it, it is insane. <laughs> it is a Doctor Who script that was rejected for being too silly. That's right. It's it's a, a rewrite of. I think you only got as far what? as a an, out, an outline stage. It's a rewrite of a story called Doctor Who and the Cricket Men. Yes. Uh, and one of the problems that Douglas Adams <laughs> had on, when cricket. he decided to turn this outline into a novel, and Douglas Adams was fairly shameless about recycling his Doctor Who work oh, for uh, for other novels. Most of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency is bits of two uh, Doctor Who scripts, one abandoned, one not. Oh wow. Uh, but one of the problems he had is that in the Doctor Who script, it's fairly obvious that the Doctor will want to save the universe because that's what he does. Who pl- gets to play the part of that character from the Hitchhiker's universe? Because Arthur will want to whine about not having any tea. Mm. Uh, Ford will want to go to a party. Uh, Zaphod <laughs> will want to look cool. Uh, and Marvin will be depressed. So he ends up pressing Trillian and Slarty Bartfast into service, and it doesn't really fit either of their characters. Slarty Bartfast in particular is kind of unrecognisable in this novel compared to the first mm. one. Although there is uh, an amazing but, moment uh, towards the end of that novel where they, they arrive and, so, and like whatever they were there to stop has already happened, and Slarty Bartfast just sort of goes, oh, well, stupid, really, or something like <laughs> <Yes>. that. <laughs> That's right. But well, you have got Arthur these actually has a bit of growth and that is in a, that one. Is a problem. And the movie does uh, nothing to address that. Sorry, Tom. I think we just had a bit of a talk over there. Do you want to start yeah. what your most recent sentence was again? The characters are all basically feckless and they don't make good heroes of narrative drama as a result. And the movie doesn't really do anything to address that problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a problem when all of your uh, characters are actively resisting the call. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, and this happens again in Dirk Gently in uh, the Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. Dirk just sort of aimlessly wanders through the script, seeing the interesting things happen, but has no effect on the plot. Yeah. Actually, I think I, I was going to bring up Dirk Gently because I think it's a fascinating example of, you know, what might have been. Because I, 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 I don't know whether you guys have seen the Netflix series based off the Dirk Gently novels, which are at best inspired by, I guess you would say. Like, it's they take several of the ideas, but they are very much their own thing. And I really, really like that series. I really like the novels, I, and I really like that series, but they are extremely different things. And you just wonder what might have happened if they had done that for this movie? I don't know. What, do you guys Have you guys seen that the, this, the TV series, and, and do you think 
what, what do you make of it? I saw the first series, not the second, of the Netflix one. I haven't seen the second. But I enjoyed the first, but then I haven't read the Dirk Gently novels. So for me, it was it would have been going in fresh. Right. No matter which way, but I, I quite I, I very much like the assassin of holistic assassin that if she kills you, you deserve to die. I love that as a I love that as a concept. It's just like just kill this guy. I don't know why. And then you'll see like a news broadcast going. Seven people were found tied up in his basement. He was a torturer, <laughs> and it's like he just seemed like a random on the street. But there's a reason. So uh, that was the concept from that that stuck out to me is very nifty. Yeah, that's nice. And I think I, I, I risk of repeating myself. I think that's that's a perfectly good way to go. Take inspiration from the source material and make it your own. And I think I think there are, there are two good versions of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie that could have existed. One is they're just the kind of well, let's just do this again with a new cast. And let's do it on a, a smaller budget as we can and just make the story work as well as we can and just try and have new people saying these familiar lines and accept that a small number of fans are going to love it and it's going to exclude everyone else, but it might make its money back on a good day. And then the other is completely reinvent this for the 21st century. And by doing neither, they've sort of done nothing. <laughs> yeah, and because the thing is that Douglas Adams, again, he doesn't write like a build-up and a climax and a, and he doesn't write narrative. He writes ideas. He writes collections of yeah. brilliant yeah, bits. The radio series was written as he was going along, mm. you know, especially the second series, because the second series, uh, so there was a Christmas special, which was episode seven, and then the Radio Times, which was a big deal in the uh, the early 1980s or the late 1970s, uh, the, the TV and radio listings magazine, mm. offered the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy a front cover if five episodes could go out stripped across the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So for the first of those five episodes, there was plenty of time to get the scripts right. But uh, (laughs) rapidly, the schedule got away from them. And so Douglas Adams was literally typing the second half of the final episode as they were recording the first half. What? Uh, And uh, they had had barely a a day to do all the editing and post-production and uh, the, that final episode was biked across London to uh, the transmission station uh, about 45 minutes before it was due to be broadcast. What? <laughs> I don't feel so bad about getting a bit uh, behind my <laughs> <laughs> James Bond recapping now. Yeah. Well, we could, we could probably tell stories about Douglas Adams's lateness uh, for as long as we've been recording already. But, you know, he famously said, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they go by. Yes. <laughs> and the reason that the first Hitchhiker's novel ends so abruptly is because Adams had missed deadline after deadline after deadline. And eventually the publisher said, finish the page you're on. We are sending a bike to collect the pages. <laughs> and then for the fourth one, he just he kept missing deadline after deadline after deadline. And finally, they locked him in a hotel suite Yes. And he wrote the entire thing in a week. What? So what was, uh, I mean, what are the, the reasons for that? Are you guys obviously very well um, acquainted with his style, but was he just a deadlines man? He was or? just a deadline slayer. Yeah, he, he just could not write to deadline. He couldn't he do it. He loved being a novelist. Like a, he loved being a famous and rich novelist and writing off Porsches, but he didn't actually like sitting down and writing very much. 
I mean, I can understand that. <laughs> also, he was a perfectionist. And so he would write four pages and then the people would come back the next day and he'd have only written two pages. And they're like, how's it gone backwards? <laughs> <laughs> so he was a perfectionist then, but he obviously, like he didn't suffer from kind of writer's block or anything like that that sort of stopped him. Oh, he him. suffered enormously from writer's block. There's okay. an, an amazing interview which he gave, uh, which is reproduced in The Salmon of Doubt where he says, I, I'd spent so long not sure if I had another book in me, whether I was ever going to write anything else. People wanted another Hitchhiker's book. They wanted another Duck Gently book. I'd written stuff, but none of it seemed any good. And then I just decided that I'd come to the end of my career. Uh, and that was fine. <laughs> I would go off traveling uh, and, uh, and do other things and playing with computers. And then he said, what happened was when I stopped trying, ideas just started coming to me. And at first I ignored them, but after a while I started writing them down. And now I filled a couple of notebooks. And the question I'm faced with now is, well, can I, in the, what remains of my career, make use of all these ideas I've collected? And then about two weeks after that, he died of a heart attack. Oh, that is so sad. That story I, makes me well up every time I think mm. about it. I think I remember you uh, telling me once, Tom, uh, years ago that uh, Douglas Adams's premature death was sad, particularly sad because you felt he had so much more to do like some 49 uh, he had so he had so many productive years left and there are so many douglas adams stories and ideas that we have been denied uh, it's just it's just the saddest mm. thing mm. It is sad. you, he, he would have been, he would have been cancelled about five times on twitter by now <laughs> <laughs> he definitely would have gotten cancelled like he and his cronies like stephen fry and um and uh and uh, uh richard dawkins <laughs> like that's the problem with clever people on the internet is that often they, when they get have an idea, they think it's right <laughs> yes. just because they're clever and often they are right. The, the reason being, too, that they can often defend a wrong idea quite quite well. Mm. Uh, to cheer you up, shall I tell you the genesis of Slarty Bartfast's name? Yes, oh, please. please. Douglas Adams had this idea for an old man character who would have a perpetual sadness about him, but he thought, what could he be sad about? Maybe he's sad about his name. So when he meets Arthur, he says, my name is not important. And of course, it turns out his name is Slarty Bartfast. So what he wanted was a name that sounded, but wasn't, unbroadcastable. Uh, and then he just, he just kind of uh, moved the syllables around until he had something which would work. And the name he started with was Farty Fuckballs. <laughs> Well, that leads me to another thing I wrote down about this, which is um, Bill Nye as Slutty Bartfast in the film. What do you guys think of him? Almost, I, almost perfect, I thought. I think he's the best character in the film, and he's doing a lot with what little he's given. I put it to you, because I – is he just being Bill Nye? Yeah. <laughs> but he's perfectly cast. Well, that's right. He's got that sort of self-deprecating – slightly odd he'll stop he'll kind of pause and then look up at you quickly like a like a squirrel or something he should be like oh well no, i was here and then look at you to see if you've you know cottoned onto something the, the uh, line is there's a line from the books but he gives the perfect reading of it when he's when he's like now there's a portal thing up ahead uh you might uh, you might be a little bit disturbed by it scares the willies out of me <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yes. and that factory floor is beautiful it's very it's good Wonderful job they have, not they? That does look fantastic. A lot, a lot of this film looks great. A lot of the casting is great. The problems are entirely with the script, and in particular, the script editing. Uh, so, again, with Sati Bartfast, he has a line uh, when he first meets Arthur, 
uh, what's your? You must come with me, or you'll be late. Uh, what's your What's your name? Dent, Arthur Dent. Late, as in the late Dent, Arthur Dent. It's sort of a threat, you see. I've never been terribly good at them myself, but I'm told you they can be very effective. <laughs> and then his next line is, "Your friends are safe. You can trust me." Yeah. So again, make a call. Is Is your conception of Starty Bartfast the one who's going to make veiled threats, albeit be rather embarrassed about them, or is he saying to Arthur, "You and I are on the same side"? But it can't be both. Yes, and then he's. Yes, I'd forgotten what I was going to say about that. I just—I I was more just sort of thinking he's just so Bill Nye to me. And I've heard lots of lovely things about Bill Nye as a person. Like apparently he's just like a top bloke. And to me that comes across through a lot of the characters that he plays. Like, you know, if you, the one that I know most him mostly for is from Love Actually because I've, you know, had <laughs> the last few years of my life devoted to a show about that. <laughs> about that uh, movie and he's this aging rocker who says really inappropriate things but because he's Bill Nighy and he's a lovable rogue and he's got that charm he gets away with it whereas if you put I don't know if you put Johnny Depp in that role now it would be very problematic um, <laughs> he's lovely in Vincent and the Doctor uh yes he's great, that, yes. he plays that really well but he's still a bit Bill Nighy I don't know I guess everyone's a person so their personal traits will come through in their roles but yeah i enjoyed the cgi what about the heart of gold spaceship design is that good or compared to and the marvel uh, again, me, oh it's gorgeous sort of, let me come back to you nat and ask do you understand how the heart of gold works so there's a infinite number of probabilities and the heart of gold simply is all of them at once and then eventually is the right one. No, I think is the answer. I don't. <laughs> I think, actually, I think you've hit it right on the head. Uh, it's, not bad. it's not bad. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where the writing is so clever and so, okay, is this going to sound rude if I say almost delighted in its own cleverness? No, I, I think that's a fair criticism. I can mm. understand someone being turned off Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because it was kind of smug in that rather undergraduate, self-satisfied way. That would make total sense to me. Obviously, it's not how I feel about it, but I would get it. If no, no. Said. I, I wonder if that's maybe why, because I did read it when Dan gave it to me, but maybe uh, maybe I didn't. I don't know. I, I do like the writing, but I, there's a certain, I can see how somebody would think there's a certain like, well, you wouldn't understand this, but us clever <laughs> people know that. But well, no, the, the reason I'm asking is because I think the explanation given is so garbled in the film. I'd be amazed if anyone just watching the film could figure out what on earth was going on and why Ford and Arthur materialise as sofas uh, and why that... Oh, talking about perfect casting and bits that really do work, Bill Bailey as the whale. Oh, so that's good. maybe the, the most completely successful scene, scene in the entire movie. Uh, it's basically exactly as it is in the radio series, book TV series, but Bill Bailey really manages to make it his own and it really mm. does work. But as to why it happens, I imagine anyone who whose only exposure to the material was this film would be clueless. I, I didn't quite understand if I thought the probability drive affected the heart of gold. So I wasn't quite sure how it turned external objects, as in the, the <laughs> nuclear weapons, into a whale and a bowl of petunias. Mm. Um, so a I, bowl of petunias who uh, says, oh, no, not again. Yeah. Um, I think there's a... Pratchett, I think it's a Terry Pratchett line, uh, which I think I just applied to the Heart of Gold. 
the idea of it's a million to one shot, which means you always get it because it's a million to uh, yes, a million to one shots come off nine times out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it's I think it's from uh, Guards Guards or Men at Arms. That's right. Yes, it is. And he's got to take a shot from an arrow. Yeah. He's like, well, they 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 work all the time. Uh, so I I kind of applied that uh, understanding to the Heart of Gold. It's like it's a million to one shot, and he's got it's essentially the big button. Like they literally keep saying Zayfod, don't press the big button. Uh, and so when Arthur presses it, he's like, I'll oh, sod it, you know, and presses it. And then they come back to normality and the whale is there. Uh, I just thought, oh, I, it's the million to one shot. And it worked. The problem that Douglas Adams was faced with is he's making this up as he goes along. He's shoved Ford and Arthur out of an airlock and has written they'll asphyxiate within 30 seconds and now has to find a way of keeping the story going and feels as if any solution he comes up with is so wildly improbable <laughs> that no uh, reader will buy it. And so he invents the infinite improbability drive, which is a method of moving spaceships from point to point without all that tedious mucking about in hyperspace, <laughs> uh, uh, which sort of leaves improbability in its wake. So the idea is that uh, moving a spaceship instantaneously from one point to another is infinitely improbable. So the spaceship passes through every point of the universe simultaneously when you turn it on. Uh, and uh, the that's that's um visualized in different ways so the, the version in the uh the radio and tv series is when ford and arthur are picked up uh they are on the pier at south end i think it is and they they keep noticing things that are odd like the way the sea stays steady as a rock with the buildings keep washing up and down <laughs> and so eventually probability returns to normal and then everything stops being weird and the movie makers are delighted at the visual possibilities of mm. things looking weird and that that shot of the heart of gold turning into random objects is yes. lovely yes but it's also meaningless <laughs> yes it's not yeah. connected to any idea yeah I, 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 they, have, I, they have half the explanation from from the book but they don't have the whole explanation and so the half that is there i don't think really makes any sense well why don't we talk about because that's the star of the film is the book Oh, yeah, we haven't talked about the actual guide. Sorry, I shouldn't call it a guide. It's the book. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the guide, the book, it's fine. Uh, I think it looks fine. Again, what was done on the TV series was so extraordinary. It seems mm. impossible to try and top that. They they do find a consistent visual language, which works. Uh, oh, and which the is the little animations. Yeah, which yeah. is fine. And Steve the dopey little jokes, like the, the sort of the quirky cartoonish jokes yeah. that the writers of the film seem to love, do kind of work in that format. Yeah. But had given how extraordinary done, done... the TV series was, the movie just seems to be doing uh, like a karaoke version of the same thing. Mm. It hasn't moved on from the radio series. It hasn't moved on from the TV series mm. the way the TV series moved on from the radio series. Yeah, they got access to 3D graphics, but it's no funnier because of that. <laughs> yeah. It definitely felt like like the the guide portions were whenever Stephen Fry was talking, that was that was verbatim from the books and the, and the radio show where where they would just have big stretches of him saying all the familiar funny things that you enjoy as a fan of Hitchhiker's Guide. Mm. And I think that that works yeah. really well in an episodic radio play or an episodic TV show, but in a movie, I can't help but feel that it sort of pulls some of the oomph out of the story yeah yeah and sometimes they did little narrations over the top 
but there wasn't a consistency to it. Like sometimes if they went, oh, we need to explain what's going on here. And so they just have the Stephen Fry voiceover kind of come in over the top while like they're flopping around on the spaceship going into hyperspace probability space thing. And to be fair, that is true of the radio and TV series as well. It's not deployed consistently. It is a general purpose narrator. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's explicitly an extract from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And sometimes it is just here are some things you, the viewer, need to know about what's happening to Ford and Arthur. Yeah. Um, I had a question just back on the Heart of Gold. Why does Zaphod Beeblebrock steal it? Because I can't remember from the books and it's not really clear in the movies, apart from like he can because he's the president or something. In the book and earlier versions, he wants to find Magrathea. Why? He wants to find because Magrathea is the is the legendary planet that built planets. But and more importantly, he wants to use it to find the pe- person who actually runs the universe, doesn't he? That's later. I think okay. I don't think that's explicitly stated. Yeah, in the this, this, the second the second radio series, he has a separate quest about finding the ruler of the universe. But I don't think that's uh, mm. I don't think that's part of the first series. And and that's still his motivation in the movie, isn't it? He he wants to get to Magrathea. Yeah, sort of. All, yeah. all, all the bits and pieces are kind of jumbled up. I th- Kerry Kirkpatrick seems to think that Deep Thought is on Magrathea, which doesn't yeah. make any sense at all. Mm. Or there's a portal because they they jump through a portal. Uh, yeah, it's, the, it's not it's it's not clear. And then somehow they all end up in Arthur Dent's house on the rebuilt <laughs> yes. Earth, uh, eating food. Um, is is the mice storyline? I know I remember from the books that mice are the most intelligent creatures on Earth, but they, were they actually people disguised as mice? Because I thought the whole point was it was actually mice, or am I? Have I no, they're, they're hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings who right. take on take on new forms and uh, and live side by side with the the Earth people on on Earth. That is that's all that's all to the extent again that it's it's so hastily explained in the movie, but that is that is um, canon. Right. Okay. So I just missed that. All right. <laughs> there is an existentially terrifying shot when he squashes the two mice, who yeah. then revert to their uh, humanoid forms and then disappear. And I'm like. Did they did they die in like a higher dimension? What happened there? Yes, just just when you thought you couldn't dislike this version of Arthur Dent anymore, yeah. he turns out to be a stone cold murderer. Yeah. He, yeah, he murders both animals and children in a single blow. And, yeah. and 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 I think that really that really does take the essence of Arthur Dent that he manages to solve his biggest problem by tearing himself out of constraints and punching and just punching his way out. It's yeah. a real Arthur Dent thing. <laughs> I'm detecting sarcasm. Sarcasm <laughs> slash S. Actually, this is I, something, something else that, you know, sometimes creators don't understand what they've created. You know, mm. this is always collaborative. And I don't want to be, to be reminded of this, but uh, so again, a little bit of trivia for you. Uh, people who've read the books in the novels, when is the first explicit reference to Arthur Dent being in his dressing gown after uh, he leaves Earth? Oh. Well, I've got no idea. I think it's the beginning of the third book. Really? Really. And Douglas Adams, when he did the television series, wrote a scene on board the Heart of Gold in which Arthur Dent changed out of his pyjamas and dressing gown and into some sort of like silvery space gear. 
And it was the director, Alan J.W. Bell, with whom Adams clashed repeatedly in the making of the television series, but who I think was dead right on this occasion. And I yeah. think Adams would have that. He said, no, what makes Arthur Dent funny is he's traveling around the universe in search of a cup of tea in his dressing gown and slippers. Yeah. He insisted that Simon Jones stay in the dressing gown. So you know, sometimes even the original creator doesn't understand what it is they've created. That's mm. such a fundamental part of Arthur Dent, too, that he's the perpetual like man in his dressing gown wandering the universe. He stays British no matter where he goes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I do like the line when they're queued up at the um, Vogue sphere where they have to queue for the bureaucracy. And he says, I'm British. I know how to queue. That's quite sweet. But maybe it's not that great. It's just I thought, ah. Well, that's the bit where you get like just a very small glimpse of the Marvin, the original Marvin from the TV show. Yes, and then they that. continue right, yes. to show you Marvin from the <laughs> TV show over and over and over again, just in case you missed it. That was probably good for me because I didn't see the TV show. So I was like, oh, there's a robot. Also, the incredible joke where Arthur says to Marvin, can you give me a hand, Marvin? And then he rips his arm off. <laughs> I do. Fuck off. Really? I don't mind that. I'm... Fuck that. See, I've got a higher tolerance for cheesy puns than Dan does. There is, like, some jokes are just lovely little moments of silliness. Um, there's a bit, I've got a note here, that there's a thing in from the book about a race of 50 armed aliens who invent aerosol deodorant before, before the wheel. But it, it doesn't need a shot of an alien with much fewer than 50 arms spraying <laughs> deodorant on and then throwing the can onto a pile of other cans next to an abandoned bicycle with a square wheel. Where's, where's that? that? This is, this is happening on, on Hamakavula's planet at some point. Do you want to know what bothered me about that sequence was the fact that, that they have that digression about the 50 arms and the, and the, the deodorant before the wheel and all that sort of thing. And they explicitly say that they are the ones who believe that the, the world was sneezed out of someone's nose and they wait for the time of the great white handkerchief. And then we go to a, like a church where Hamakavula is some sort of like Pope like figure. And they're all just, four limbed humanoids standing there saying, you know, being a part of that religion. Mm. It's just such a weird thing where they've literally just said, it's these guys, it's these weird aliens with the 50 arms. And then we go to a completely different uh, group of, of humanoid looking people. I don't know why that pissed me off so much, but it really did. I was just like, that's lazy. That's so lazy and inconsistent. Also is Hamid Kavula supposed to be the bad guy? He's the closest thing to it, I guess. Because sort of the Vogons are, but also Zaphod is. Uh, and the, the vice president isn't because she's got the hots for Zaphod. She seems to just want Zaphod back. What is that character? What is her deal? She's yeah. there. She, I, I can guarantee you she's she's there because the produ- the American producers had a note that they didn't want Zaphod to be left without a love interest at the end of the film. And because, <laughs> because uh, Trillian ends up with Arthur, Zaphod gets a girl too. Okay, so this is the thing. I assume in the TV show and the radio series that the whole cast was British. Uh, is it just to get the American funding that they cast pretty much everyone except Martin Freeman <laughs> is and uh, Alan Rickman, I suppose? Yeah. Uh, so Adams yeah, has gone on record uh, as saying Sorry, that, sorry, Dan, do you just want to start again? I think we had a bit of talking over each other. Uh, Douglas Adams has gone on record as saying he 
you could cast any character however you want. Trillian could be a, a, a big black woman. Zaphod could be a, a CGI cat. As long as Arthur is a British man, everything mm. else is on the table. In fact, an Englishman. An Englishman, yes. Mm. Is there a difference? <gasps> yes. Oh, <laughs> my goodness, Dan. Apologies to any Scottish, day. Irish or Welsh people. <laughs> this will take issue. You can write to dan at smartenough.org <laughs> <laughs> with your complaint. Um, uh, sorry, yeah, so Mark, Wing, Mark Wing Davey in the original cast does a kind of American inflection, which is a little bit stronger in the TV series and the radio series. Eddie the Shipboard Computer sounds American, although it's a, a British actor. But yes, basically, it's a British cast. And so, for example, I, I think that uh, assuming that he was a bit more on his game, Sam Rockwell makes sense. But him being this, I think Douglas Adams originally conceived of the character as like a kind of Californian surfer dude. Uh, and uh, and that makes sense. But when he's surrounded by other Americans in Arthur's life, when mm. both Ford and Trillian are American as well, Zaphod, it, it makes them seem like they're all part of the same gang in a weird way. Mm. And that's you, you question. Is it, I don't object to, to Mosdef in theory, but again, they can't decide which way they're going to go with it. So they retain the detail that Ford claims that he was that he's from Guildford. Yes. Yes. But then they have to put in a line covering that about Arthur saying, I always wondered about your accent. I mean, why not just say he came from Brooklyn? Yes, that's right. Or get Moss Def to do a British accent. Yeah. (laughs) English. (laughs) Uh, I think that Sam Rockwell, weirdly enough, I was watching him going, did he inspire Joe Exotic, the Tiger King? (laughs) 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 Because it's uncanny. Zaphod does have big Tiger King energy. Yes. (laughs) The the hair and the beard and the kind of like, you know, two thumbs, finger guns (laughs) thing. It's all very, yeah, running an illegal tiger operation. Uh, I very much liked Simon Jones's cameo. Oh, yes, he's like the... the That was pitch uh, perfect. Yeah, well, that seemed very English. Like, we're so thrilled that you are here at Magrathia and want to see us. Uh, we hope you enjoy the two thermonuclear devices we've set to intercept your craft. And there's a real sinister element to it. He's he's so good. I wish he was in more stuff. What, what happened to a lot of those people from Hitchhikers? I mean, was that their fame and fortune? or? Still looking around. Simon Jones crops up and other stuff. Uh, he's in Brazil uh, for 30 seconds. He's in 12 Monkeys. Yeah. Uh, he crops oh. up uh, here and there. Uh, and Mark Queen Davy, I think, is teaching now. Uh, Jeffrey McGiven just carried on being a, a radio and television character actor. Stephen Moore is probably the one who's most famous. He died, uh, oh, oh, only about three or four years ago. He's Marvin and like a bunch of other characters in the radio series. He's a lovely actor. He's one of the Silurians in the Matt Smith Silurian Doctor Who story. Ah. Oh, wow. I was going to ask you a question, Tom. I noted something down when you were saying your quiz. The hot black desiato. Yes. Hot, hot black des- desiato, is it? That's right. Now, am I wrong in remembering that you have lived near the hot black? De- is that a thing? That it's a real. Yeah, so hot real black thing desiato is the the name of a, uh, a firm of estate agents in London. Right. Uh, and Douglas <laughs> Adams, who, as we've said, is a reference uh, suffered from writer's head. block. 
uh, was trying to think of a name for a character, and he said he drove past this side and almost crashed his car uh, and uh, asked for permission to use it, which was granted. But he said uh, much later, uh, people started coming into the Hot Black Desiato office in Islington uh, and saying, bit cheeky, isn't it, using a, a name from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to sell houses with. So Hot Black Desi, like is Desiato a person or how? Is it a coffee? I don't or? know where the um, so Hot Black Desiato is the the uh, the manager of the rock band disaster area, right. uh, who is spending a year dead for tax reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I see now just a line I feel I've read elsewhere yeah. as and, well. And Ford meets him at the restaurant at the end of the universe. So I can only assume I've never looked into it. I can only assume that Hot Black Desiato was created by somebody called Hot Black and someone else called Desiato. Right. And, and thus Hot Black Desiato, like, you know, Price Waterhouse. It's a great name. Yeah. It's fantastic. All right. Well, I think we're probably coming to a wrap-up of this examination of The Hitchhiker's Guide. Well, it's kind of been all things, really. It's been a through the frame of the remade movie. Um, I wanted to ask all of you, do you know, or apparently, according to the Wikipedia page, there is a Hulu TV series that's been commissioned. Oh, I did hear about this. I did not know, and I'm no, intrigued. No, I didn't know about that. So it's, it just says uh, under television series on the Wikipedia page, a new television series for Hulu was announced in July 2019. Carlton Cuse was named as the showrunner alongside Jason Fuchs, who will also be writing for the show. The show will be produced by ABC Signature and Genre Arts, set to premiere in 2021. Production will begin in the summer of 2020 and air on Fox in international markets. It is expected to run for multiple seasons. Now, given COVID-19, I imagine they'd probably have to push that back. But what is the potential for a TV series of Hitchhikers or a rebooted TV series with a bit of money behind it, potentially for special effects? And I, I I think that's fantastic. I think... If they get it right, it could be amazing, and it could be, it could have the humour of the original, but with the budget of modern uh, television hang productions. Hang on a second, just looking up the talent here. Arthur yeah. Carlton Cuse is an American screenwriter, producer, and director, best known for the American TV series Lost. Uh, mm. So yeah, <laughs> uh, no, that's. Uh, he's done other things. Apparently, he's been working on most recently Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, and Lock and Key. Oh, that's uh, good. Okay, I've heard good things about that. Yeah. I never thought that that any Douglas Adams work would ever be as good as the books. The books were incredible. But then <laughs> the Netflix version of Dirk Gently came out, and that first season I just absolutely adored. Mm. So anything's possible. Hopefully I'll live a couple more decades and uh, eventually someone will get Hitchhikers right. Well, the other guy, Jason Isaac Fuchs, it's spelled F-U-C-H-S, Fuchs, I don't really want to say fucks, Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Jason Fuchs, he's best known for writing Ice Age Continental Drift, Pan, and Wonder Woman, he wrote Wonder Woman, apparently, there you go. Oh, no. No? Oh, no, oh, I didn't enjoy any of those. Um, Okay. (laughs) Didn't you like Ice Age? No, no, Ice Age. The Ice Age films are terrible. Oh, okay. But the little rat guy, the little. Yep. 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 The little rat from the two minute short film trailer thing. Best part of the film. Everything else, (laughs) hot garbage. Okay. Dan is very. I thought you liked Pixar, or is that not Pixar? It's not even Pixar Pixar now. Come on. Sorry. (laughs) 
Look, I'm just trying to set myself up as a pop culture expert. I can't be expected <laughs> to know these things. As uh, I've been saying throughout, I think that the secret to this, and I don't think this is, you know, this isn't a complicated idea, is understanding what makes the source material work mm-hmm. rather than being overly reverential to any specific bit. Yes. yes. If you understand I- what makes it work, then there's no limit to what you can do. And then you're free to include, exclude, throw away do your own version of but if you don't fundamentally understand what made it great in the first place then your chances of even replicating it let alone reinventing it are close to zero um Mm. i give you while we're we're, uh, shitting on pop culture that made lots of people (laughs) happy uh i give you mary poppins returns okay a, a, a precise example of that people who are slavishly copying details of the original and have no idea what made it work so is that your take? Because I haven't seen Mary Poppins Returns because I have a very complicated, weirdly complicated relationship with the fact that I love Mary Poppins, the original. Love It's, it's great. probably my favourite movie of childhood, uh, as in, you know, whimsical and uh, let's face it, Mary Poppins is basically James Bond uh, as a nanny. Let's be fair. <laughs> you know, mysterious the, origins, gadgets. The genius of the movie is that it takes these very episodic novels yes. and finds a through line, which is that the kid's father has to learn to be a dad mm. and not a kind of army sergeant. He's yes. got to learn what it re- reconnect with his children. And that's what Mary Poppins is doing there. And in the new film, this is replaced with a race against time, literally uh, to overthrow an evil banker. <laughs> uh okay mm. what's the race against time for that is it they're going to repossess the house or something yes Correct. exactly oh shit. <laughs> I just, that just popped into my head but i don't know <laughs> bankers mortgages uh so it's like happy gilmore then essentially a little bit <laughs> <laughs> he's got to go win golf tournaments to save his grandma's house i was about to say and, i liked it uh more than tom uh, but i i definitely concede that it's um it it, it exists in the shadow of, of the of the first movie but even it's a, with, it's a karaoke version of the first movie in, right. in many ways but even with the sparkling charm of Lin Manuel Miranda and his musical talents i sound sarcastic but i'm only jokingly because he's Obviously, well, he didn't actually he didn't actually write the songs for the film. This is the thing everyone thinks that oh. he wrote those songs, but he'll he'll happily tell you like he didn't write any of the songs. I think he collaborated on one or two of them, but he wasn't like the main songwriter on the thing. He was just there as an actor. It's oh. weird because that's the last thing you want Lin Manuel Miranda to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, he oh, watched wow. the, the Hamilton film, which is obviously amazing. It's incredible, and and everything about it works. But I think even Lin Manuel Miranda would concede, and I think in fact has conceded that as far as acting goes, he's definitely the weak link in that otherwise exemplary cast. Mm. <laughs> oh, isn't that interesting? But I mean, he did like do everything else. So I, oh, sure. Listen, if that yeah. was and and it, the the meta story. This is now the Hamilton podcast, but uh, the meta story <laughs> makes sense that the self-made man plays the self-made man exactly. in the thing ah. that he makes. You well, know? The, the so I wouldn't necessarily you, want it changed, but the fact yeah. is that he does struggle to do things which other members of that cast do effortlessly, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. in my view. Um, I mean, you, you, you probably know this, Tom, but the, 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 fam- the, the famous story is that he was going to play Aaron Burr, which is why Aaron Burr has the two best songs in that, in that show. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Yeah, initially he was going to be Burr. And then mm. someone sort of tapped him on the shoulder and said, 
uh, you're very clearly Alexander Hamilton, so <laughs> you, need to, you need to do that. And so they pivoted straight away. Oh, uh, cool. Wow. Oh, I'm just trying to imagine him doing Aaron Burr now. You can see his um, performance at the White House. He did a, a performance at the White House uh, in 20. Oh yes, I have seen that. That yeah, that's yeah, where... where he does the opening as Aaron Burr. Uh, and yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you you get you get the sense of of him playing that character and him telling the story on behalf of Hamilton, which is what he was setting out to do. Uh, it's a little bit like yeah. some of you who've been in theatre productions may have done this in the past, where uh, late in the rehearsal process, just for a bit of fun, you get everybody to switch parts. Yes. <laughs> and then you're like, don't be too good. Don't be too good. <laughs> yes. And you're like, shit, I just want this one actor and to clone them seven times. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Hamilton, it's an excellent film and excellent stage show. And I think we've really covered that in this podcast. Uh, <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to Hamilton. Ah, oh, a mashup. Interesting. No, but... <laughs> Um, sorry, just to uh, – Mary Poppins is what we were talking about. And just to say I have a very complex relationship with the fact that P.L. Travers famously did not want the movie to be made in the first place and very begrudgingly had to be dragged over the line. And, and a bit of that is in the Saving Mr. Banks movie. It's not completely accurate, of course. And they have her, I think, in the film Saving Mr. Banks, like watching the movie and having like a quiet cry – a quiet cry? A quiet cry – and Walt Disney kind of giving her a hug or something like that, and it's all a bit nice. And I don't think that happened in real life at all. I think she was disturbed by the movie and she thought it had been <laughs> trivialised and, you know, all of a sudden there were dancing penguins and, you know. And so she did not give her permission for any other films to be made of her material. And I think obviously something happened in the years after her death where Disney was able to wrangle it. But uh, so, I, yeah, I have really complex feelings about going, I don't think she would have wanted this. So maybe I shouldn't see it out of respect for her, but also maybe laziness on my part because I kind of don't want. Um, but you know, it she is... didn't want the first. She didn't want the first one either, and the first one is terrific. So. Yeah, that's true. That's so true. Stop her. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but again, it, goes, it goes back to that thing that creators don't always know what it is that they've created, and hmm. it's the difference between writing a novel, yes. where you have a very direct one-on-one -on -one relationship with your reader and making a, a movie or a television series or even a radio series where suddenly there are all these other voices in the mix. And it's what a good director does is to harmonize all those inputs. I think the most important thing that a director does, especially on a big budget movie, is be the tastemaker. Mm. Be the one who's mm. taking input from everybody and keeping only the stuff that feels like it all belongs. And that's why you need a really experienced director at the helm and not somebody who's making their first feature. Yes, oh, it was, wasn't it? For Hitchhikers? Yep. First feature? Yep. And wow. It's such, it's such clever. Hitchhikers is so clever, and yet you've got you've got people who are writing who are just not clever enough. And there's a bit that's very telling at the very end of the film where Ford runs after the Vogons with a towel whipping at them. You remember this bit? I, Run, yeah. chases them behind the shed and w while they're running away they're yelling out run away run away <laughs> yes i do we're going we'll have to go the other way and that's what this fucking movie is <laughs> <laughs> it's 
it's you know when you're at a when when you're a teenager or your early 20s and you're hanging out at a party and you're all chatting and being witty and pithy and having a good time and some humorless clown comes along and starts quoting Monty Python that's who wrote this <laughs> wrote this film it's like the wow. little britain people got their hands on a monty python script and just fucked it well douglas adams did do some writing for monty python didn't he yeah he did he did yeah there's a couple of bits of his in the slightly misbegotten fourth monty python television series so i did okay random tangent but i did not realize that john cleese left monty python oh yeah for, for the final series i never knew that and then i don't know where i was where was i he, and it was on TV or I was watching on it and it was like the cast. I went, there's no John Cleese sketches and seems very odd. And then the castlers came up at the end and it was just the five of them. And I went, what? And I had to look it up and went, oh, yeah, he buggered off for reasons. The fourth they came back is only six films. episodes and it's called Monty Python instead of Monty Python's Flying Circus. And I think Cleese is credited as a writer on two episodes because they use some of his stuff that they'd thrown out of earlier shows. Uh, and oh. then uh, there's a couple of bits from... Douglas Adams and I think one other writer maybe Neil Innes I can't remember uh, but yeah the, the fourth series has got some good bits and pieces in it but it's nothing like as good as especially series two and three mm. that's extraordinary I just I did I, I he never talks about that no that's never seems to be mentioned it's obviously been you know at the risk of turning this into the Monty Python podcast <laughs> oh go ahead <laughs> go right uh, ahead one of the curious things about Python sorry, is sorry, Tom, sorry, Tom, sorry, sorry, Tom, sorry, Tom, saying say that again. Give me the feed line again. Give me the feed line again. Just just say what you said. <laughs> At the risk of turning this into the Monty Python podcast. <laughs> no, go ahead, Tom, because nobody would have expected that. Oh, it's happening. <laughs> oh, it's happening now. <laughs> oh no. The BBC sold episodes of Monty Python's Flying Circus to America. American networks recut the episodes without consulting the Pythons. The Pythons took them to court and won, and thus, I believe, gained ownership over the intellectual property, which up until that court case would have been work for hire. Those sketches would have been owned by the BBC. Now they were owned by the Pythons. And that meant that the Pythons could recycle them in record albums and stage shows and so on. And so the Python we've grown up with is the best of those 45 television episodes. Mm. And that's partly why it's endured so much. When you see some of these even classic sketches, the first time they've done them in front of an audience and in a different context, they don't always work as well. Even comparing the parrot sketch in the original television series to the parrot sketch filmed only about a year later for, and now for something completely different, you can see that Cleese and Palin understand the rhythms of the sketch better and can sell it more. And when you see them doing it on stage at an amnesty show or uh, uh, Drury Lane or Hollywood Bowl, they have total mastery of it. But very few sketch groups get that opportunity. That is really interesting, isn't it? Because I don't know about the UK right now, but sketch is not massive in Australia at the moment. Same. And it's sad because it is a very valuable place for people to learn writing, isn't it? And like crafting jokes and crafting humorous exchanges and essentially, I don't know, like sitcoms can come out of sketches and stuff, can't they? Yep. Uh, in Australia, the one that comes to my mind was uh, Kath and Kim which is a you know very fine sitcom, very funny you know Australian mother daughter parody, but that was 
uh, began in the late 90s in a sketch series that those actors had. And they sort of took that out and developed it into a full sitcom. So why is that? Why is sketch, is it just a secular thing or money? Is it expensive? Yeah. I don't think it's particularly expensive. I think it is just, yeah, I think it is just yeah, cyclical. I think just fashions ebb and flow, and it's storytelling this year, and it's surrealism next year, and it's short form the year after that, and it's uh, longer, more sustained things the year after that. And people always want something new, and so in order to find something new, you look for something that hasn't been done recently and reinvent that. Yes. So give it what five, ten years, and sketch yeah. will have a resurf resurgence well there, there was a great show uh, that aired in australia just recently i don't know whether it probably didn't make it over to britain uh, tom but uh there was a show called uh, at home alone together um i didn't see no, didn't any of that, that. yeah I... which is incredible it, it uh, uses a a beloved actual uh, beloved uh news presenter ray martin uh, as its host completely playing against type like being a curmudgeonly old guy who swears and 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 stuffs up lines and things and then he'll and it's it's a lifestyle show but a lifestyle show based around the covid pandemic so it will it'll be like you know how to deal with your kids in in uh in lockdown but it's basically an excuse for a bunch of sketches right and so they've they've just come up with a a sketch show but completely tied into the zeitgeist and it actually it got great reviews over here and and deservedly so because it was really really good and some of them were really really weird some of the sketches (laughs) that they did and it was great I assume because they were producing on fairly tight turnaround, so they yeah. just had to kind of go with stuff. Just, yeah. Someone turns in a weird script. It's like, well, I guess we're filming this one. Um, and Douglas Adams cut his teeth writing sketches. You know, he, he was writing for Footlights when he was an undergraduate. He famously says uh, he saw John Cleese performing at a Footlight smoker and thought, I could do that. I'm as tall as he is. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, he was. he replaced John Cleese as a writer on Monty Python. Well, uh, not quite, yes, but yes, he, he contributed a, a couple of sketches. Uh, and Hitchhikers, in its original radio form, is basically a series of sketches with just about enough plot linking them together. But what yeah. what Adam is able to do to bring this tanker of a podcast in a slow turn back to what it's meant to be about, uh, what he's able to do is then, like a good improviser, look back at what he's established so far and think, well, OK, how can I now make further use of that? Whereas, as I say, I think this this script appears to have been script edited with a machete. That's the thesis then. It's all in the writing. Like the script just did not survive that thousand cut death, as you put it, Tom. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't have Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy without the jokes. And so many of the jokes have been cut that what's left is neither funny nor is it engaging because it's a more streamlined story. And the acting is wildly inconsistent, I think. Martin Freeman's doing something. I'm not quite sure what it is, uh, but it, <laughs> it, it works from time to time. Ditto Mos Def. Uh, Bill Nye, as we said, is excellent. Um, Thomas Lennon as Eddie the Shipboard Computer is ideal. Yes, Bill Bailey as the good. whale is fantastic. Uh, but there's there's a there isn't that guiding hand on the tiller. There isn't that person saying, I know what this is meant to feel like, and I'm going to make sure that that feeling is all the way through whether we are replicating word for word dialogue that the fans will be familiar with or whether we're doing something entirely new, it's all going to feel the same. And this is, this is a mess. This is, mm. this is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy's salad. Mm. That's a very it's... good point, Tom. I, I think it's interesting. I, I think there is an incredibly uh, 
accurate and well-realized adaptation of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in a film form, and I think that film is Men in Black. Oh. Yeah, um, as as Douglas Adams tells the story of yes. trying to get it made, <laughs> it had been it had been in de- development hell for ages, and he eventually spent a lot of his own money, like something like hundreds of thousands of dollars of his own money to buy the rights back, convinced it was never going to be made. And then within months of closing that deal, Men in Black came out mm. and suddenly everybody wanted science fiction comedy. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Well, he even he even suspects that like some of the producers, wasn't there some crossover with producers and things like that? He was like, I think there was, yes. Yeah, yeah. There, there, he was like, I think there was like some some cross-pollination happening there. Who knows? If you'll really indulge me, and again, Natalie, cut this if you want. Uh, um, One of the happiest moments of my life was being at Oxford, uh, at the Oxford Union, when Douglas Adams was invited to speak. And he spoke apparently off the cuff for about an hour and then took questions. And I imagine a lot of what he said, his stories he's told before. Uh, And he said, one of the things that is always frustrating is you keep getting answers right, or where do you get your ideas from? And he said, I usually just come back with something facetious, like I, I get them sent to me mail order. And the reality is you, you don't know where ideas come from. They do just appear. Real life rarely gives you stories that you could use because in real life, things just happen for no reason and they don't often have proper punchlines. But he yes. said just occasionally life will give you a story. And he said this a story that actually happened to me is uh, that I was waiting for a train. And because the train was late, I got into the station cafe and ordered a cup of tea and some biscuits and had sat at the table reading my newspaper and because it, the place was crowded I was sharing my table with someone else and the someone else reached over opened the packet of biscuits and ate one and as a <laughs> I didn't know how to react to this so eventually I just decided that I wasn't going to let this stand and uh, took another biscuit and ate it myself and then the other man took a third biscuit and they went through the whole packet one biscuit each without saying anything until eventually the other man's train arrived and he got up and left. And Douglas Adams stared at him thinking, what the hell was that about? And then Douglas Adams' train arrived and so he got up to leave and picked up his newspaper, under which were his biscuits. Oh, no! <laughs> and Douglas Adams says, there's another man out there who has the same story, but he doesn't have the punchline. <laughs> He told this story to Jeffrey Archer, the conservative MP and novelist, uh, who laughed heartily at it. And Douglas Adams was then rather startled to discover the same story turned up in a collection of Jeffrey Archer short stories. Oh, no. <laughs> so Douglas Adams says, I don't know where writers get their ideas from, but I do know where Jeffrey Archer gets his ideas from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Imagine being that other guy. <laughs> <laughs> And Douglas Adams later put the story in the fourth Hitchhiker's book just to kind of claim a bit of ownership of it. Uh, well, uh, Dan, Stu, final thoughts as we head towards the restaurant at the end of the universe. See, I'm trying to tie it in. Whatever. <laughs> Thank um, you. Well, in my mind, Hitchhiker's is always about dealing with loss. That's the thing that really connected with me. And the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the novel, was absolutely my whole world. And this movie blew it up. <laughs> so maybe it's perfect. Maybe it's a five-star <laughs> film. Maybe it's helped me be Arthur Dent and just keep pushing on despite the fact that these guys just ruined everything. Is that why you're recording the podcast in your dressing gown? Well, oh, no, then... I'm naked. <laughs> Dan does love tea. 
so i do like tea and i learned how to make tea from douglas adams really yeah he wrote a he wrote an article about how to make proper tea and i've followed it to this day wow (laughs) goodness me well thank you both uh tom and dan for joining us for this filler interstitial podcast while I get my shit together. I really Uh, hope that you're able to use that time to do all the work and you don't just leave it until the last minute again. (laughs) Is that a a Douglas Adams reference? Can be. Oh, okay. I think it might just be a slam on your uh, organisational skills. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) In my defence, I've had other, like, non-Bond work kind of come you know i've had to do so i've been like ah i gotta do the things anyway so yes i can hear the sound of a deadline whooshing bar (laughs) (laughs) uh well thank you everyone i hope you've enjoyed this if there are other things that inspire listeners uh, of the podcast who want to kind of pop culture take let me know happy to arrange uh and we'll keep the bond thing rolling on tom is going to join us for another bond film down the line but you will hear him next week on our Octopussy broadcast. And so we move around in time yet again. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. Thank you um, for having us. I, yeah, it, it's been a, well, I'm not sure whether it's a joy. It's It's been a <laughs> shared experience. <laughs> um, in a time of lockdown and global unrest, we need to take these moments of um, shared experience where we can. In a time uh, of global lockdown and global unrest, there are far worse messages than don't panic. I was about to say, nice. that is an excellent way to end, Stu, because I don't think the Bond shaken, stirred outro will work. So um, <laughs> with that, uh, we've had Tom, Stu, Dan, I'm Nat, and don't panic. Really? Not, not, so lo- not so long and – no, all right, don't panic. Oh, so long yeah. and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> I forgot that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So long and thanks for all the fish, everybody. <laughs> Professional podcast host. So I don't know where I get my ideas from, but I do know where Natalie Mahensky gets her ideas from.